Hi, I'm Hannah Smay. And I'm Haley Robinson. And this is the Wild Idaho Podcast, coming to you from the Idaho Conservation League. The Idaho Conservation League is Idaho's leading voice for conservation, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the lands you love. Each month, we'll be exploring a new topic or current event that impacts the environment in Idaho. Join us to learn about the work we're doing and how you can get involved. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of the Wild Idaho Podcast. I'm your new host, Hannah Smay, joined as always by Haley Robinson. Hi, listeners. I have recently taken over the Wild Idaho podcast from Austin. He and his wife recently welcomed a new baby, and I recently joined the ICL staff and volunteered to take over while he adjusts to his life as a new dad. I work in the Ketchum ICL office as our Central Idaho Engagement Assistant, and I'm super excited to be here. Today, we are interviewing Marie Kellner, who was recently promoted to ICL's Conservation Program Director. We're going to talk to Marie about the changes to ICL structure that we've seen recently um, and give you a 30,000-foot view of ICL's four major campaigns, which are tackling climate change in Idaho, restoring salmon and steelhead, cleaning up the Snake River, and continuing to work to keep public lands in public hands. We are here with Marie Kellner, ICL's new program director. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your new role? Sure, I would. So I've been with ICL. I want to say that probably this is like the week that I interviewed to work at ICL. It was the end of October. Mm -hmm. might have been the very first of November, but I think it was right around now. And um, that was eight years ago. And I interviewed to be the water associate, and I was the first water associate. It was an expansion of the organization's work. So I didn't replace anyone, right? And, um, and the job at that time was three kind of big aspirational goals about securing flows for rivers and um, seeking efficiencies in water use and also trying to identify places where maybe water was being um, misused or, or used not in accordance with the way it was appropriated to be used. And so those goals have been created by... Justin, our now ED, our then program director, and a, a subset of the board who were really, really interested in ICL getting into the conversation of how we use water in Idaho and the health of rivers from a, the way it's talked about in the, in the water world is water quantity. So amounts of water as opposed to water quality, which is something that I think is easier to understand. Like we mm-hmm. all know if we are drinking or swimming in disgusting water, right? Like, and so ICL had always been a voice for water quality, literally from its founding. That was like one of the founding, um, one of the reasons it was founded. And I think it's neat to think about how 1973 when ICL is is founded, it's just a year after um, 1972 when the Clean Water Act was established, which is our federal water quality law. And so it's sort of like a, a moment in our nation's time. And, um, and so you see Idaho and, and a group of people in Idaho that felt really strongly about like the need to advocate for the health of rivers. But it really had always been from ICL's, pers- or ICL's work, the way that um, like staff capacity was allocated and stuff was always to be a voice about the quality of water. And we really did not organizationally get into discussions um, about amounts of water so much. And so that was my job at the time. And this is the kind of work that I'd hoped I might be able to do when I went back to law school, which is what I did in 07 up at the U of I. 
because they have a water policy program. This is the world that I want to be a part of, and these solutions are the kind of things I want to be a part of, like creating. And but I don't, I cannot tell you how I'm going to do it because <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I think it's good to think big. You have to think big, and then you figure it out on the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm only realizing in this moment as I'm saying it, like what a great transition that is to our four goals that we have. <laughs> so what are our big yeah. goals? What so, are these big? Big. Ambitious, long-term, yes. future-shaping, what do you call changes. them, B-hags? B-hags. What does that the mean? Big, hairy, audacious goal. Ooh. A B-hag. <laughs> audacious I think goal. Our, I feel like I affiliate that with um, Lori Banducci, our, our current board chair, actually. Okay. I remember when we were talking about one of these four things um, uh, several years ago, she said, this is what I would call a B-hag. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. That doesn't mean you don't go after it, but it just means, whoa. And so um, we have four BHAGs. <laughs> we probably have more than that. We have four names stated that we're working toward. Um, and they are our four major campaigns. And I will say that even though we have these four campaigns, there's still other work that the organization does and will always do that doesn't necessarily fall neatly under one of these, but just as a way to, again, sort of restructure and think about how to work efficiently and effectively toward achieving certain goals. We're rethinking and reorging how we talk about it and how we think about it and how we plan for it. So the first one is um, just to make Idaho carbon neutral, you know, nothing (laughs) big. Yeah. (laughs) And recognizing, I shouldn't use the word make. Um, uh, I'm going to look in the actual plan to see the... Um, Well, this one actually still does say make, but um, our long-term goal is that Idaho be carbon neutral. And so we want to do what we can as an organization to affect that happening. And this is all related to climate change and so our climate impact. And I think an interesting thing or an interesting way or a a kind of a helpful way for me anyway to think about um, the work that we do is climate change impacts everything that ICL works on. It impacts all of our, you know, not ICL, but like everyone in the world's lives. As far as being the Idaho Conservation League, what can we do as an organization that is within our control to reduce the contributions to climate change? That's really how to think about our climate program. And we have Ben Otto, who's been on staff for 10 years, our energy associate, who is engaged with all the utilities that serve Idaho, but also others that um, in the Northwest, looking at ways to, um, you know, working on, Ben could describe his work a lot better than I can, but like working on ways to incentivize efficiencies in energy use and also being an advocate for non-carbon based in, um, fuels for, um, for creating energy and renewable energy projects. So that is one thing that we can do. Ben's work on a daily basis is targeted at reducing the amount of carbon that Idahoans are responsible for putting into the atmosphere. And that is a major prong of the work that we do and, um, and that Ben does, really. And a subset of that that we've talked about a little bit, too, is transportation, right? Because mm-hmm. my understanding is that transportation in Idaho is the number one cause of air mm-hmm. pollution mm-hmm. Um, or carbon emissions, anyway, from yes. people. Yes. Um, and so I think that one's a really big one. Idaho is such a driving focused state. Everyone has a car. It's the yeah. easiest way to get around. And like in some, especially like rural communities, 
Yeah. It'd be difficult to get around any other way in some capacities, it seems. So Yeah. part of that, I think the transportation work that we're doing is um, interesting to me, especially with how rapidly Idaho's growing. Right. Right. It is. And that is another, you're absolutely right, Haley. Like that's another prong of that work um, that is geared directly at trying to improve public transportation, trying to work with um, other colleague organizations and advocates that work on um, non, alternative transportation, right? Like pathways, bikeways, trails, and public transportation. Another thing I know that um, Ben and Austin Watkins, our, um, our staffer who's primarily the lead on the transportation work, are working on um, more EV charging stations, more strategic, like EVs working on the stri- electric oh, vehicles. Thank yeah. you. Very good point. Electric <laughs> vehicles, being a part of the conversation about what makes sense for where those need to be in order to encourage people to use electric vehicles, um, or to make people feel comfortable using and actually have the ability to get the power they need to run their electric vehicle to recharge it, as opposed to using gas. And so um, they're working on that kind of work too. So, so. You know, and as I even just said that, I thought about how the goals are big and exciting and the projects can be exciting and then thinking about, like, the daily work that goes into making them happen. It's not always exciting. <laughs> can be. <but laughs> can be, but sometimes. A lot of emails. About those men I just mentioned are probably sitting in front of computers right now. Yeah. <laughs> reading or writing policy documents mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So, um, so our climate program, our climate big hairy audacious goal is to is that Idaho be carbon neutral and that we would play the part actively proactively and um, responsibly in making that happen and um, that's our first one it's the only of the goals that is directly well not the only but it's it's the primary goal we have that is directly looking at the contributions Idahoans make to emitting more carbon in the atmosphere and what we can do and then a, a lot of the rest of our work is in many ways responding to the impacts that are that we're seeing everywhere from climate change. It's not just that. I mean, it's more than that. But I think as far as like a lens to think about the work that we do, we have one committed program and staff working on reducing our impacts, and then we uh, reducing our emissions. Excuse me, and then most of the rest of the work that we do in some way could be tied into responding to what's happening and trying to protect the things that we're tasked with working to protect clean air, clean water, and wildlife and lands. So um, a second program that we are a part of, and this is the one that caused our Lori Banducci to say, that is a BHAG, mm-hmm. is making the Snake River in Southern Idaho a swimmable and fishable river, waterway. And once was that, In the headwaters of the Snake River over in eastern Idaho, coming out of the Tetons, you have literally world-class trout fishing streams. You have, I mean, literally people from traveling, travel from all over the world, much less the state and the country, to experience in that. That's your, I'm looking at Haley, grew up in Idaho Falls, Mm -hmm. your stomping ground. Yep. Um, Really clean water, beautiful water, special waterways. And by the time it travels all the way across southern Idaho and hits the Oregon border, and then it's impounded in the series of Hell's Canyon dams. There's three dams that make up what are called the Hell's Canyon complex that's managed by Idaho Power to generate a tremendous amount of our power. It does not meet water quality standards, and that's really sort of an understatement. I mean, it's it's uh, 
there have been warnings the last many years at Brownlee Reservoir, which is the first reservoir that the, that the river hits before it hits the, the next two. You know, because of al- algal blooms, it's dangerous for your pets to touch the water. It's dangerous for human beings to touch the water. You definitely can't recreate in it. You can't eat anything from it. And so just those are two like striking contrasts, or I guess it's one contrast, isn't it? It's like two things that create one contrast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, what happens? A lot of things happen between the top of the river and by the time you get to Hell's Canyon. But we have in the vernacular, it's called non-point source pollution. And that is pollution that ends up in waterways that we don't have regulations to address. The Clean Water Act doesn't address it. In Idaho, it's primarily runoff from dairies and agricultural fields that is not otherwise cleaned or regulated. There are, of course, dairies and ag operations that treat their water to certain standards, and that, but that's primarily self-imposed on them. That's, it's not required. And so that is the largest contributor of pollution between you know, the headwaters and when you get to Brownlee Reservoir. The other thing that happens is, going back to what I was very first talking about, about water and the way water is managed is, you know, the Snake River does not flow as a natural river. It's heavily managed. There are reservoirs all up and down the stretch between the headwaters and Brownlee Reservoir. There are multiple others. And there are thousands of miles of canals and ditches across southern Idaho that move the water from the Snake out into the agricultural fields. And it's a, I think it is a system that was created certainly not with any ill will toward the river, but one that um, has meant that the flows are so reduced in parts of the river that the river can't, you may have heard the phrase, dilution is the solution to pollution. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people have heard that. But the river is not allowed to do that anymore. And And Hannah, you've spent time, this summer you spent some time down along sections of the snake, didn't you? Yeah, we went on a float trip with a former Department of Environmental Quality employee, and he took us on a, and he was also a former raft guide, and he took us Mm -hmm. on a pretty fun, actually, rafting section below Lower Salmon Falls Dam on the Snake River, and so this is part of the mid-snake section, and we were pulling out all these micro... Fights, microfights, macrofights, uh-huh. macrofights, uh-huh. uh-huh. and they're not like supposed to be growing there. And there's all this vegetation that's growing in the like in the river. Yeah, it smells bad, and there's flies. And then there's all these fish farms that we floated yeah. past. Yeah, oh yeah, we're and there was one waterfall that uh-huh. was like, oh, it's so beautiful from far away. And then we got closer and paddled up to it to kind of examine it, and there was like this whole. All these dead fish that had uh, like been flushed out of this fish farm. It was really sad, but it was, it was actually really interesting to go through and see all of the tributaries coming in to the Snake yeah. River at that point because that right. is when, you know, maybe the water quality doesn't meet the standard at the top of that section, but with uh-huh. all of the tributaries, it yeah. may reach it at the bottom. And right. so, if they only use the sample from the very bottom of that section to like make their to think to, about the amount of flow that's needed or right. yeah that's not necessarily accounting for the whole for right for every point along the river is it yeah. meeting the standard so it was really yeah. informative and really really good so i recommend yeah. it it's a good class three section wear your life vest Fun. and your helmet 
That's that awesome. really fun. That you all so did So we'll that. do some more of those, I think, next summer and try and get a little bit get of Get more a, folks out. Get more folks out onto the river to enjoy it, see how fun it is and can be, especially if you're not too, like, afraid of the water splashing you in the face. Because you're like, oh, man, there's What's so like? much cow poop in this yeah. water. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, yeah. From what I understand with the Snake River, it's unique that all of that happens within one state. Right? Yes. With the Columbia oh, yeah. River and the Colorado River and some of the work on the East Coast with the Chesapeake Bay, all of that managing, cleaning up a waterway takes yes. so much coordination between states and jurisdictions and mm-hmm. the Colorado and the Columbia, it's international. Right. And so it seems really unique that we have this, all, all the problem happens in the state of Idaho. And so uh-huh. we have kind of all the control. Yeah, in a lot of ways we yeah. do. In Idaho, the snake uh, over just over eighty percent of the water in the state of Idaho. I'm just remember we were talking about this last week. Just over eighty percent of the water in the state of Idaho ends up in the Snake River. So virtually every you know the Boise River ends up in the Snake River. The you know Salmon Falls Creek does. The Wood River ultimately does. All like, the Payette Rivers. All the Payette Rivers. Thank you. Uh, the Portniff, uh, like there's the Bear River in southeast Idaho that actually goes to Utah. It's its own little basin. It does not come back. But um, everything from, you know, if you go all the way, like the border of the uh, of eastern Idaho from Montana down to Utah and, uh, and with Wyoming, every water, you know, all the creeks and rivers flow into the snake somewhere. And that goes all the way up to... The Clearwater River in Lewiston, you know, comes down and joins with the snake there at Lewiston. And then that's actually where it like turns out of Idaho. But like the overwhelming majority of the snake is in Idaho. And you are absolutely right, Hannah, in that it's really unique that as a state, we have such a major waterway that is all within our state. And it is, and I'm sure, Hannah, like thinking about what you were talking about a moment ago with um, your trip this summer and how, you know, you have more water coming in, water coming in, water coming in, and the river builds itself back up from places where it was really low water because of where it was being diverted out to fields. Yeah. yeah. But the, the pot, this is a fascinating thing, I think, and I think a lot of people don't know this, but the Snake River, the official policy of the state of Idaho for how the Snake River is managed is that it is actually not one river, it is two. And you have the Snake River above Milner Dam, which is down between like Twin Falls and Burley on the Snake in southern Idaho. Snake River above that is one river, and the Snake River below it is managed as a different river. And it is acceptable, and in fact it is state law and policy that the river would drop, be drawn completely down to zero flow at all in the riverbed at Milner Dam. All the water behind the dam could go out into different um, canals and ditches. And then it ultimately, a lot of that, not all of it of course, but a lot of it, through the springs and the waterfalls and the things you were describing, Hannah, like fill back in down below. But there's a long section that has none or extremely low flow, which is where a whole lot of those problems come from. Mm-hmm. And we stood on the riverbed below Milner Dam this summer on our field tour um, and like walked across the river yeah. under the bridge where... Just a couple weeks before, it had been a full, maybe not a full river, but it had been flowing. You couldn't you yeah. have to swim across. But yeah. It was allocated, and this is in the end of August, so yeah. the end of the summer, low water, very low, no water. 
It was really interesting. It is interesting. Stand on the riverbed and like look at this volcanic rock and by trying to like improve the status of the river by trying to make it in the the terms fishable and swimmable come from the Clean Water Act, but they're meant to be like things that people human beings understand that better than they understand micrograms per liter of something. Mm-hmm. So we can get though what it means to feel comfortable fishing in and eating the fish out of a river and what it means to swim in a river and know that you're fine. And so that is the actual like metric by which the Clean Water Act works. And so that's why we're using that term for our campaign, um, recognizing that, you know, it's understandable by people, but also internally it means specific things and helps us to think about what we need to be doing to get there mm-hmm. in ways that the like greater water management framework is set up to do. So it's sort of a, a subtle thing in that way. So Marie, we've talked about um, the Snake River and we've mm-hmm. talked about the goal to make I- Idaho uh, carbon neutral, mm-hmm. combating some of the effects of mm-hmm. climate change. Um, so what are the other, I mean, I know I'm leading you into this, but yes, I promise perfect. that I know the four campaigns also. <laughs> but um, what's the next one that you have on your radar now? Um, our next one is another BHAG. It is, Restoring wild salmon and steelhead to Idaho. Restoring them in healthy numbers. By restore, we mean in healthy, harvestable numbers, meaning folks can continue, or folks could not continue, folks could go out and fish for them again and know that that was perfectly a a wonderful thing to be able to do and in no way negatively impact the species. It is a huge goal. But wild salmon are really having... They're having a moment right now, and I believe the moment is um, is truly spurred by how dire the fate of the species is. So there are multiple species of salmon that travel from um, that are born in the um, the highlands of Idaho, um, primarily central Idaho, the Sawtooth Wilderness area, and areas downstream on the Salmon River from there. That those are the um, the rearing grounds for Idaho's wild salmon. These fish travel down all the way down the Salmon River, hit the snake there at the end, go out to the Columbia and then out to the ocean and then theoretically make it back to Idaho to um, to spawn again. And so they're called anadromous fish. An anadromous fish is one that starts in freshwater, lives most of its life in saltwater, returns to die, to rear and die in freshwater. So Idaho's salmon are really unique for a whole lot of reasons, one of which is they travel the highest in elevation and almost one of the furthest distances of any species on the planet. And so um, I think that, you know, technically like the salmon up in Alaska that go up the Yukon River actually travel further than Idaho salmon, but Idaho salmon go from sea level up to 8,000 feet. That's amazing, yeah, that's a right? <laughs> and they go through all these dams. So like the fish that actually make it back, it's a amazing it is amazing but our fish have been listed for over 25 years on the endangered species act and a species becomes listed under the endangered species act only when it is already a really bad situation i'm nutshelling all manner of detail but in general the fish have been listed for a long time for very good reason and the numbers are plummeting so precipitously in recent years that it is just, it, the status quo cannot continue. It's now what, or never. It's now or never. It is now or never. The opportunity will be lost to restore wild fish. They'll be gone. And so ICL is committed to 
doing what it can as Idaho's leading voice for conservation to not let that happen. And we are recommitted to that as an organization in the last year, year and a half, two years in a way that um, I know that I, it's a priority in a way that I've not seen it in my other years here. But what I think is, says way more than like my eight years of working at ICL is there, you know, there are many people who've dedicated their entire lives, their entire working lives to being advocates for these species. Many of them are now retired. You know, they've worked on it their whole life and now they're retired. And in talking with some of these people, and I, I feel so fortunate to know some of these people in Idaho's community, they are feeling a moment for a moment of hope for these species that they haven't seen in their in their lifetimes. You know, there's a new urgency or a, a renewed urgency would be the better way to say it, to you know just everybody double down to do what can be done, and ICL is completely committed to that, and we are part of not just a statewide coalition of people and organizations working to make this happen, but a regionally um, organized group of people and organizations that are also committed to seeing it happen. Governor Little earlier this year named that he would organize a salmon working group to try to figure out Idaho's solution to this. And Justin is ICL. ICL was offered a seat in that group and Justin is holds that seat. And can you touch briefly on the dams? And how that plays a part in this? So again, these fish, Idaho's fish, begin in Idaho, travel down the salmon, the snake, the Columbia. So the Columbia is also, uh, I want to say that the the term for the Columbia is the federal, the Columbia River Federal Power System. I mean, like, it's not just a river, it's a power system. Um, it is massive hydropower, gigantic dams that span the entire river. So the fish have had an obstacle. You know, historically there were no dams, right? And salmon traveled freely from central Idaho out to the ocean and back. Earlier in the 20th century, the large Columbia River dams were built and that inundated the traditional fishing grounds of myriad Native Americans and myriad tribes and took away their ability to be able to harvest the fish in the way that had sustained their tribes for millennia. But the fish overall, as far as like, United States federal government matrix for, um, or metrics for what is acceptable for amounts of fish continued to be okay. And then in the 70s, like in the 60s and the 70s, we have what are known as the four lower snake dams that were built. And those are dams that are on that stretch of river between Lewiston, Idaho, and the confluence of the snake with the Columbia there in Washington state, in southeastern Washington state. And so there are four dams, and they basically do what most dams do, they create lakes behind them, right? And so this is, think about if you're familiar with the geography, you think about, you know, Lewiston, which is one of the lowest elevation places in Idaho. The water is sitting basically in the desert, baking all summer long, um, and even other parts of the year too. So not only do you not have the flow that the fish evolved to be able to uh, go out with, traverse, yeah, and travel back upstream against, um, you have just like stagnant pools of water that get hot. And salmon weren't designed for that. Steelhead weren't designed for that. They didn't evolve that way. These are gigantic obstacles we've put in front of them, and they're four in a row that span dozens of miles of the river. And... Once those went in, that's when the numbers really started dropping. 
So, and then you move on to the early 90s and all these fish begin to be listed as endangered species. And then you sort of, you know, it kind of goes a different direction about like, what do you do to recover them? You know, even before the dams went in, there was a movement that they not go in. There was a movement and there's been a, a persistent movement to have them removed ever since. Many, many scientists have looked at the issue and see removing those dams as the single greatest thing that can be done to um, improve the chances to recover these fish. A couple things about the lower four snake dams. They're not Idaho dams. They're in a different state, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. They're owned by the federal government, Army Corps of Engineers. They're not Idaho's dams. They're federal dams. And they're not even in Idaho. You know, it's not like other dams in Idaho that are, you know, where it makes a little more sense. But Idaho's opinion on it as part of, you know, this is the nature of water, right? Like water doesn't care where we live and it doesn't care about the boundaries we created as human beings. It's traveling among all these states, and it's a national issue and an international issue. And so the decision makers from all of those places have a relevant voice. But the removing the dams has continually been something that scientists, fish biologists, have pointed to as something that would produce great gains for the fish. So these dams are, they produce some hydropower. They provide some water for irrigation, though it's in no way like Southern Idaho, how the Snake Rivers managed to provide water for irrigation. It is a small percentage. The other thing, though, the way that these four dams are, are meant, or why they're there, and I neglected to say this earlier, is Lewiston is considered a seaport. It's the furthest inland seaport on the West Coast. And that is because of these dams and the dams that are along the Columbia. So they are um, barges can come up all the way to Lewiston and then go all the way back out to the ocean. And almost like a salmon should. Al- almost like a salmon should. Yeah. Actually, exactly like a salmon should. <laughs> Something <laughs> and human-made infrastructure yeah, <laughs> to do it. And part of what is shipped on those barges, or primarily what is shipped on those barges, is wheat from farmers along that stretch of the snake. And so that was a, a primary reason why they were built, was to turn the lake, turn the river into a series of lakes that could accommodate those kinds of ships and barges. Too bad there's not a railroad right oh, yeah. next to the river. You know what's interesting? The whole way. You know what's interesting? What? There's a railroad. There's a railroad. There's a railroad. There is a railroad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's a railroad. That's convenient. It is. Right? It's almost like somebody wanted to use that as a corridor, a transportation corridor for right. goods, getting people and and commodities between that area by Idaho right. and the ocean. There could be a way to take care of all the people whose businesses and livelihoods rely on moving that those commodities up and down the river if we could figure out a way to put those on the train instead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's out there. And our fourth big campaign is one of the things that ICL has always done. It was the other, you know, really founding concept behind ICL besides water quality that we talked about earlier. And it is related to public lands, public land management, public land access, and responsible use of the the natural resources that come from our public land, but also being a voice for access to and responsible management of all of Idaho's public lands. You know, we have 60 some odd percent of land in the state of Idaho that is federally owned. Bureau of Land Management and the United States Forest Service are the, the two biggies. I mean, there's some a little bit of park service land here and there, but it's primarily our national forests and our BLM land. And ICL remains committed to 
landscale level protections for that land and being an advocate for the most you know special the most unique lands having the the greatest protections that they could have and i think like the the recent example of icl's commitment to that was the establishment of the boulder white clouds wilderness and now the cecil andrews mm-hmm. wilderness in in part um, as well as something that's being celebrated this fall, which is the 10-year anniversary of the Owyhee Initiative and the Owyhee Wilderness Area. And our public lands director, John Robison, was ICL's representative on that initiative to make that happen in south- southwestern Idaho. And so you have examples of like wilderness protection, which is the highest level of landscape protection we have in the United States, all the way down to places where we're acknowledging absolutely there's going to be a harvest of resources, whatever that might be, and having a seat at the table with collaboratives around the state that are making decisions about how resources will be extracted along with how conservation will happen and what needs to happen to make that be a truly responsible or a truly responsible use of those resources in a sustainable one. So we remain committed to that. So I, this body of work, Calling it a campaign is a new thing for our organization because it's there's not this one goal that the way we could say a swimmable, fishable southern or Snake River in southern Idaho, restoring wild salmon and steelhead to Idaho, Idaho being carbon neutral. It's not that specific. It's much more amorphous um, than that. But it is stated as a campaign to remind us all and remind our members and others of the commitment that the Idaho Conservation League has to landscape level protections. And to keep public lands in public hands. And to keep public lands in public hands. I, yesterday, had the opportunity, this is, who knows when people will be listening to this, but this is um, in a couple day window in late October of 2019. And Ken Salazar, who's a former Secretary of Interior and Senator from Colorado, was in town as part of this lecture series that the University of Idaho College of Law puts on. And I went yesterday, we are fortunate enough here in Boise, we just live like two blocks. Live. We live. We live. We live, <laughs> we live here. It's a beautiful old house. We live here like two blocks from the Capitol. Also, that's two blocks from the Boise's location of the U of I Law School. And so the secretary did a session yesterday afternoon open to the public and last night open to the public. But yeah, I went yesterday afternoon. Someone asked a question about public lands and public hands and, um, and access. And he spoke in a, a wonderfully, um, a way that I really appreciated about the importance of maintaining our most special places in the United States and not just maintaining them, but maintaining access to them. And somebody in the crowd asked a question about, you know, aren't there some places though where you would think that we should outlaw access to them because we're gonna love them to death, basically? He disagreed with that and he explained how we have levels of designation for how things can be managed. He was like, I think the answer to that is in management. We have wilderness areas and it is highly restricted what you can do in a wilderness area and that is so that we maintain the kind of protection of that place that we want. And then we have places where, you know, the the way that they are managed and so like the reason that they're managed this way is purely to be utilized by business and industry and that's that's their purpose. But like there's a spectrum and we have a system that allows us to acknowledge that some places are like too special to 
to allow things to happen in. So I thought that was nice to hear. The other thing was he was, it was a panel. It was Ken Salazar and then it was Idaho's Attorney General, Lawrence Boston, who's been the Attorney General. I can't remember exactly how many years, but nearing 20 at this point. He's Idaho's longest serving Attorney General. Someone in the audience asked a question about should um, the federal government give back federal lands to Idaho or some of them. And he was so clear on it. He was like, I cannot emphasize this enough. We never owned them. There's no giving back. They were never Idaho's. He was very emphatic on trying to um, get people to stop using the term give back. He was like, they were never ours. They absolutely weren't ours. And then he, he was like, so the legal question, there's no legal question. It's settled. It's known. They were not ours. That's they, awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. And then he, um, then he said, now what is a policy question, though, is should some of the land go to the state? He was like, but if you feel like some of the land, some of the federal lands ought to be held in state hands or ought to move to private hands, you call your representatives and you tell them that. And if you think that that should not happen, you call your representatives and you tell them that. He was like, that's a policy question and that's why we have policymakers and lawmakers. That's for them to decide. But the question of whether it's like there's some major abuse, uh, you know, to Idaho of us not, you know, these lands being taken from us, he was just emphatic, like, no, never <laughs> ours, never ours. Sounds like a question he's got a lot before. I think so. Yeah. He seemed, he jumped right up to the, <laughs> the opportunity like, to speak to it. I to say about this. Yeah, <laughs> speaking to a group of, you know, there are probably more than 100 people there, but a, a lot of them law students, but not all, of course. I mean, I was there. But he was like, I want to make sure all of Let you people understand. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's not an issue. And he said, I have legislators telling me, you know, like, but, but, but. And he's like, hey. The issue is settled. Now, if what you guys want to do moving forward is a different question, and that's not his job, you know, as the attorney general of the state. So mm -hmm. that was nice to hear him just reaffirm what I've heard him say before yeah. and what I think our attorney general's office generally has said multiple times. I think we have legislators that don't like to hear it, and so it comes up and pops up in different ways. But, um, but the question of, like, oh, the federal government took this from us um, is not going to be a way that those legislators are going to ever have success. So it's kind of interesting. But our public lands work will remain a priority for ICL. And again, we bring it all back around. It is listed as a specific campaign because it is a permanent effort of the organization. It's amazing and very audacious to think that, those, that our other three campaigns will term out, you know. With the salmon, we have a very limited amount of time. Snake River, it's acknowledged. This, is a, this would be a lifetime's work plus a little for people too, <laughs> to actually get it back there. And climate, um, you know, doing ongoing, our part and yeah. getting there, but ongoing, the impacts of climate change and recognizing there's a, you know, Idaho being carbon neutral is a, is a goal that you can achieve, but again, a really long-term one. But, the, um, but public lands work will always be a priority. The Idaho Conservation League, it was part of why it was founded. And so to be an advocate for landscape level protections and responsible management and access, is a permanent job like it never ends you know you, you maybe get certain designations and certain projects are resolved but that's it's a permanent job it never ends and that's where we are right now that's where we are right now <laughs> awesome thank mm -hmm. you marie 
Thank you. Our new conservation program director. Director, yeah. At the helm of these yeah. four campaigns. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> With an amazing team of people. It's such an awesome group of people that are here doing the work and all our members. The work doesn't happen without all the members and all the support. It's awesome. It's, part, it's a gigantic family of conservation all across yeah. the state. It is certainly not the 13 people that are, you know, that their job descriptions and work plans lay out working on all these goals. It is the tens of thousands of other people that care about all this. That's the only reason that it actually succeeds. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Marie. Thank, thank you. you, Haley. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wild Idaho. And we will see you next time.